Okay, welcome everyone and good evening. And uh, uh, for those of you in the room, and good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you're joining from online. Um, welcome to ODI, um, to this event on civic campaigns um, for tax reform held here at the ODI offices in London and online. I'm Hazel Granger. I'm a senior research fellow at the um, Development and Public Finance team here in ODI, um, and I lead ODI's research and advisory work on tax. And I'm delighted to be sharing this session this evening. Um, we're going to be talking about an important topic that most people seem to have something to say about, and that is taxes, um, and in particular, um, tax reforms and the role that civic actors um, and civic campaigns can play in helping um, to make tax systems fairer and more equitable. So we'll be drawing on research from a new book edited by Paolo Dorenzio um, called um, A Taxing Journey, How Civic Actors Influence Tax Policy. And this is recently published by Bloomsbury. Uh, and we'll also be hearing from um, policy and operational experience from a range of expert panelists. So this topic is particularly important at the moment um, because rising inequality, poverty, the climate crisis, among other things, are um, increasing demand for public services. Um, but with higher debt servicing costs and slower economic growth, this is actually um, pushing more countries into, into debt. And so domestic revenue mobilization is uh, playing an important role in financing public services. But clearly, this places a, an increasing burden on taxpayers. And who pays that um, burden is a key question. And this is an area that's important to us here at ODI. Um, and if you've been following any of our past public finance events um, and the work of the Politics and Governance Programme, we've been exploring the themes of fiscal equity and civil society engagement. And this is actually a perfect opportunity to bring those two themes together. Last year, we published a report on um, the role of taxes and transfers in tackling income inequality. And um, one of the things that we found from that is that it is increasingly, well, there's increasing evidence to show that it is actually important to tackle inequality for sustainable growth. And it is actually also possible to make some improvements to income distribution, even in very resource constrained environments through more progressive taxes, uh, removing ineffective reliefs and subsidies, and um, using those additional revenues to strengthen social safety nets. And what was clear from international trends is that policy choices also matter wherever you are in the world. But it's clear that decisions in the policymaking process may not always be made in the best interests of ordinary citizens, um, and especially where there are powerful, wealthy, well-organized um, actors that can ensure that policies work in their favor and so uh, looking at examples of civic campaigns that over time have influenced positive change in um, tax systems uh, do provide some cause for optimism and so that's what we're going to be exploring today um, an earlier study of civil society engagement in tax reform that um, it was undertaken here in ODI by my colleagues Sam Sharp and others um, also highlighted the lack of technical capacity of civil society organisations as the key constraint in their influence on policymaking. Um, and it also found that it, it tends to be easier to mobilise public opposition to unpopular taxes 
um, than to campaign for increased revenues through taxation. Um, and civil society driven successes tend to be, uh, in those cases, um, when they align around other powerful interests, which were more commonly found in issues like international taxation and excise taxes, um, particularly where there were examples of coalition building between government and civil society in opposition to other actors. And I think some of those themes and findings are reflected in, in the book that we'll be discussing today, um, which looks at new recent example cases from seven countries um, and provides a lot more rich detail on the kind of strategies, narratives and approaches that were deployed by them. This book has been supported by uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and this event is also drawing on related ODI work um, undertaken with their support, and also within the UK aid-funded programme, uh, the Centre for Tax Analysis in Developing Countries, or TaxDev for short. Um, the, if, for those of you who don't know about TaxDev, um, the programme aims to strengthen the use of evidence in tax policy making and in particular by working collaboratively with tax officials in our partner countries, including one of our distinguished panelists today, Edward Abrockraft, who's, who's joining us from Ghana. Um, and we also have partnerships with Uganda, Rwanda and Ethiopia. So we'll start this session with a short presentation um, of the findings contained in the book, uh, followed by a moderated discussion with the expert panel and uh, hopefully some time for questions um, from the audience. And for those here at ODI today, um, we'll also have a drinks reception after the event, so there's an incentive to stay to the end. Um, and for those of you joining online, I would encourage you all to add your questions and comments into the chat, um, and then we can pick up on those and include them in the discussion towards the end. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our uh, expert panel. Um, to present the book and also discuss the, the key findings from three perspectives, um, from civil society, uh, from government, and also from the perspective of donors or funders. So first we have Paolo Dorenzio. Um, he's the ed editor of the book, and Paolo is a senior lecturer at the Brazilian School of Public and Business Administration at the Fundação Getúlio Vargas and he has a faculty position also at the LSE and previously he was senior research fellow at the International Budget Partnership where he uh, led the initial research project um, that led to this book and to my left here I have uh, Sergio Chaparro Hernandez um, he's the uh, international policy and advocacy lead for tax justice network and international coordinator at the Colombian human rights organization De Justicia and then on, joining us online, as I mentioned, we have Edward Abroqua. He's the principal economist um, at the Ministry of Finance in Ghana. And Edward has worked at the ministry in various roles, including debt management, uh, public investment, economic research and forecasting. And he currently works with the tax policy unit of the revenue policy division. And then finally, we have uh, Mariam Amadoun. Um, senior program officer on fiscal justice at the Open Society Foundations, and she leads the tax justice portfolio with the global programs fiscal space challenge and has also previously worked on 
strategic litigation campaigns with civil society organizations and grassroots activists across Europe. So welcome to all of you. And I'll stop there and um, I'll hand over to Paolo to start your presentation, please. Thank you. Thanks, Hazel. Thank you, everyone. I'm very happy finally to uh, be able to share the findings of this project uh, with you all in the form of a proper, proper book. Let me just say a couple of things about where the idea for this project came from and uh, how it sort of came to be over time. As Hazel said, when the project started, I was, I was working at the International Budget Partnership. For those of you who don't know it, it's, it's an international NGO that works on public finance issues more generally, historically more on the, on the expenditure side of the budget. But in 2019, we set up something called the Tax Equity Initiative, where basically we wanted to start, it, start working on the revenue side of the budget from a civil society perspective and as sort of uh, uh, based on the history of uh, IBP, really focusing on the domestic side of things, working on building the capacity and supporting civil society groups in developing countries who are interested in engaging with tax reforms and tax systems and tax uh, advocacy. So one of the first things that we felt we needed to do was basically take a look out there at what was happening, what, what experiences existed, what cases, what examples were available, of successful civil society engagement with, uh, uh, with tax reform. And given that the initiative was focused on tax equity, we had basically this, this idea that we wanted to take a look at tax reform that had an equity angle to them, that were aimed at either making tax systems more progressive or you know, countering reforms that were making tax systems more regressive. Uh, so we went around, we spoke to a number of people, including Sam here in the room, who at the, at the time was working on the project that Hazel mentioned uh, earlier. And we quickly realized that there weren't that many examples that we could actually find. And so compiling the list of the case studies that, you, that are now included in the book was not a particularly difficult job. We basically you know, uh, included all of the ones that we could find pretty much. Uh, and that people that, you know, to some extent had been documented or had been uh, done by organizations that we knew, organizations that we had some kind of involvement, direct or indirect involvement with. Um, and we ended up with these seven case studies. Five of them are in developing countries. Two of them are in more advanced countries, one in France, one in the United States of America. We felt it was interesting to also have some some comparative uh, uh, evidence also in this in this regard, even though clearly the focus of this work is on developing countries and the main aim of the book and of the project is basically to give other groups, other civil society groups who are interested in engaging with uh, tax analysis and tax reform from an equity perspective, like a menu of options, a sort of a, 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 the possibility of learning from the experience of others who have successfully engaged with these, uh, with these types of reforms in the past. So let me say quickly just a few words about each one of the examples. And I've listed them in alphabetical order, so there's no order of priority. France was, is the first one. Uh, we looked at the case of the Gilets jaunes, the yellow vests, that basically started as a popular revolt against the hike in fuel prices that the Macron government introduced a few years back. Uh, they then sort of caught public attention, got a lot of media attention, and they went on to basically start advocating for the return of wealth taxation, which had been abolished by, by the government, and by increased citizen participation in policy choices. So they started with a small tax issue, and then they went on to sort of tackle more, 
broader issues that had to do with with an equity perspective more more generally let's say uh, second case is from guatemala and an institution called uh, the uh, central american uh, institute for fiscal studies isefi uh, that following a big corruption scandal in 2015 that where you know when basically both the president and the vice president were arrested on corruption charges based on issues that had to do with the transparency and accountability in tax administration they based on the work that they had done over the previous decade they immediately were able to sort of put a proposal on the table for reforming the tax administration for introducing new legislation that would make the tax administration more transparent and more accountable uh, and so you know based on this wave of popular support you can see some of the protests that happened at the time in one of the pictures they were able to uh, put a proposal which then went through Congress and was passed into a new law the following year after a change of government following elections uh, after the, the corruption scandal itself. Uh, sorry, press the wrong button. Kenya is the third, uh, the third case. We looked at Tax Justice Network Africa, so not, not really a Kenyan organization as such, but a regional network that decided to basically act domestically to tackle an issue that they had been looking at more generally at a regional level, the issue of double taxation agreements. And they decided to take the government of Kenya to court on procedural grounds because they hadn't sort of respected uh, the, the, um, the, the parliamentary approval stage and the public participation, public dialogue stage that was mandated by law in the approval of these agreements, but also based on the fact that Kenya, the Kenyan government was bound to lose quite a lot of revenue by uh, when this uh, double taxation agreement would enter into force. Uh, and they took the government to court and actually won the case. Uh, so the, 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 the double taxation agreement did not happen, even though unfortunately, not long after, the government basically negotiated a new agreement, which was not very different from the previous one. They ticked all the boxes in terms of the procedure and they managed to go ahead despite uh, TJNA's victory, but then TJNA used this, this, this victory and what they had learned from this to sort of engage in a much broader campaign around taxation issues and double taxation agreements in particular. Uh, Mexico is the next case, very interesting case where a human rights organization called Fundar started by a, a litigating with the government trying to get the names of people and organizations that benefited from these tax amnesties that the government was using basically every time it started a new mandate tax amnesties are basically cancelling money that uh, individuals and organizations owe to the government in tax overdue basically uh, the government you know did it regularly it didn't have much of an impact in terms of improving revenue generation and as they ended up discovering when the government finally uh, uh, through again a court victory released these names is that the people who were benefiting were really people and organizations that didn't need any help from the tax administration they were like rich footballers you know the biggest companies in mexico so they were able to basically make a big splash in a in a, in a public opinion campaign and then sort of push the government further to basically address the regressive impact of these measures and push and obtain a commitment from the government to basically not use tax amnesties again in the future. Uh, I'll come back to some aspects of this campaign later. Philippines, an organization called Action for Economic Reforms, over a number of years campaigned repeatedly for the 
introduction and increase of so-called sin taxes, excise taxes on uh, the use of tobacco and alcohol, which are usually considered to be very regressive. Uh, so it's, it's interesting from, from an equity perspective, but what they did was basically combine the increase in sin taxes with financing universal health coverage. And that was a big success in terms of the expansion of health, uh, universal health insurance in the Philippines based on the revenues that the government was able to uh, collect through these, through these taxes. In Uganda, we looked at the case of uh, Seatini, who um, uh, this was more of a reactive campaign. The government, the Museveni government, introduced uh, uh, the very controversial and regressive excise taxes on uh, so-called mobile money transfers that people use basically to move money around through mobile phones. They're very used by poor people in rural areas and on the use of social media. Uh, and also they put up a, a big campaign. They were not as, as successful as some of the other campaigns. They managed to sort of reduce the taxes on the mobile money transfers. They were not able to uh, get the government to repeal the tax on the use of social media, but still they had some really interesting strategies that they, they utilized to sort of make their case. And finally, from the US, we looked actually uh, at a range of state level initiatives. So three uh, initiatives in Maine, Massachusetts and Minnesota of citizen coalitions that pushed for an increase in uh, income taxes for the richer parts of, of the population. Um, so basically uh, quite a broad set of different types of, of countries in, in the first uh, instance, also different types of organizations from sort of more think tanks to more grassroots to different coalitions, uh, etc. some domestic, some regional, but also different types of tax reforms that they tackled, even though they all had this equity component in, uh, uh, in common. A, and, and different strategies that we will see as we will see in a moment. So let me tell you a little bit about the key um, uh, the key themes that we felt were kind of running through these seven cases that we feel are going to be useful for other organizations that are interested in in working on similar types of, of reforms and of campaigns. So five emerging themes. The first one is the issue of, of narratives. So what was very clear from across the cases is that if you want to mount a successful campaign, you need to be able to tell a good story. And the good stories came in three different forms. The first one was be able to, 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 to tell a story that promotes a, a certain concept of tax justice, of, of uh, you know, uh, how tax systems can become uh, more, more fairer, can become more equitable by making sure that you know, those who have more pay more, those who uh, are owe something to the government paid in full, uh, looking at the distributional impact of different reforms and so on and so forth. A uh, second key narrative was about the need for governments to generate sufficient resources to be able to fund adequately basic public services. Uh, we see this, for example, in the USA, where uh, increases in tax for the rich people were aimed at funding education and other similar basic services. Third narrative was about transparency and accountability and the fact that the more transparency you have on taxation and on the uses of public resources, the, the more you're able to fight corruption, as in the case of Guatemala, for example, or promote equity in the case of, of, of Uganda and, and other cases, for example. However, uh, what we found was also that crafting a good story was not enough. So together with the narrative building, 
there was also this aspect of, of, of the medium, of organizations having to be able to basically disseminate and amplify these messages through different types of media to make sure that whatever story they have to tell was able to reach and have an impact on, on their intended audience. So that's emerging theme number one. Emerging theme number two is about strategies. And in fact, about a mix, a mix of strategies, of, of deploying a mix of strategies. And what we saw was the more, the more successful campaigns were, were campaigns that really did try many different entry points and many different tactics, engaging with a number of different actors, meeting with people within the executive, lobbying legislators, mobilizing grassroots activists, uh, working through the media to influence public opinion, organizing protests and demonstrations, uh, taking the government to court, so working through, the, uh, to, through litigation and so on and so forth. Um, many of them understood that one single strategy was not going to be enough to really um, uh, produce the impact that they wanted. Some of them seem to sort of adopt a bit of a trial and error approach, like in the case of Uganda. So Seatini tried all kinds of different things, but it felt more like a spaghetti on the wall type type thing. Just you know, do as much as you can and see what sticks, basically. Uh, while in other in other cases, I've put the case of Guatemala in there, but the same is true for the Philippines and Mexico as well. It was very clearly a very deliberate, very thought through strategy where uh, all of the different entry points were exploited to the maximum at the same time in a very strategic way. And what we found basically from uh, from the different case studies is that usually the winning strategies uh, combine different tactics and usually combine a mix of both outsider, meaning putting pressure on the government from the outside through demonstrations and the media, and insider strategies, so working directly with the executive, working directly with legislators, and really trying to uh, build a reform coalition inside, inside the state and inside government. Related to this topic, the issue of coalitions also comes up quite clearly across a number of the cases. Uh, civic actors or the organizations that we looked at, you know, rarely bring about change on their own. So they need to build coalitions with, with allies that are powerful enough basically to overcome what usually are, you know, uh, strong resistance from, from opponents. These opponents usually are based within government and within business. But usually what also happened, what we see happening in some of the more successful campaigns was basically being able to find allies even within government, even within business, and therefore really trying to bring together a diverse set of actors, broad alliances that were able to really sort of tilt the balance of power and make, uh, and make reforms possible. In the case of uh, in different US states, we see this very clearly, trade unions coming together with religious movements, with other grassroots activists, uh, with legislators as well, in, in the Philippines as well, they were able uh, to uh, link up uh, sort of more you know, tax-related activism with health-related uh, movements because of the focus on sin taxes and on, on tobacco and alcohol. Fourth emerging theme is the issue of capacity, which was mentioned uh, earlier as a, as a finding that came out of the work that ODI did on this before. What was interesting to us is that technical capacity is really only part of the equation. And that in fact, there's at least three kinds of capacity that seem to be required for successful tax campaigns. Above and beyond technical capacity, so the analytical skills that sort of enable organizations to 
carry out analysis that sort of builds their credibility with policymakers. There's an issue, a very important issue of political capacity, which is about engaging strategically with very actors within and outside government, and an issue of communications capacity, which relates back to the issue of a good story is not enough. You need to be able to tell the story in the right places at the right moment with the right pitch. So working with the media uh, uh, for, for doing that. We also found that there was a fourth type of capacity which was also very important, that's learning and adaptation capacity, especially because successful campaigns tend to happen over quite a long period of time. So it then requires organizations to stop, reflect, learn, adapt, be more strategic, build capacity, and so on and so forth. So this is also quite, quite important. And final point about this one is that one organization doesn't have to have all the capacities inside it. It can bring in allies and, and, and can build partnerships that allow it to basically uh, um, uh, increase its, the capacity of the movement as a whole. So in the case of Kenya, for example, TJNA had no knowledge of how to use litigation. So they basically built a partnership with, with another organization that did have that, that, uh, uh, those skills. Final emerging theme, and then I'll get to the conclusions. Political opportunities, again, this is, uh, you know, it's often talked about in, in, in the political economy of reform literature. Uh, in, a, in a number of cases, we see changes in government, corruption scandals, economic crises, you know, opening windows of opportunity for reform. The key thing about political opportunities, of course, when it comes to civil society, is that you cannot predict them, but you basically need to be very ready for them when, when they happen. So what we see is, again, this issue of making sure that periods when nothing seems to be happening are used to build capacity, to build coalitions, to uh, carry out analysis, to establish relationships, to basically get everything ready for when a political opportunity opens up, which then also links up to some of the recommendations that, uh, that I have, uh, that we've sort of collected in the final chapter of the book. Um, we grouped them in three, sort of directed at three actors, which very conveniently are the same actors that are also <laughs> uh, represented here in the panel. So I'm very curious to see what, uh, what people on the panel have to say about this. For civic actors, I mean, I don't have to spend a lot of time because basically I've already told about the lessons that we've learned from the different cases. In each one of these, uh, in the, throughout the five emerging themes, there's a series of, we feel, sort of interesting lessons and messages that come up and that might be useful for other organizations they want to learn from these cases, they want to try and sort of uh, adopt and adapt the things that others have done, see what, what might work for them, what makes sense in their own context, and for the campaign that they want to work on. For government actors, it's, I guess, a reasonably simple message about not seeing civil society as an enemy, not seeing citizens and citizen groups as, you know, the nuisance, sort of the people who come and knock at your door and then you have to try and turn away as quickly as possible, or you do your best to uh, ignore as much as you can. Civic actors, at least for reformers within government, can be very important partners. We see this very clearly across a number of cases. They can help with uh, technical analyses. They can help uh, sort of weakening the opposition to the reforms. They can build political pressure from the outside government. They can help coordinate reform coalitions and so on. So at least for those within government that are interested in uh, making tax systems more equitable, there's a clear uh, ally that you can find in, in civil society. 
And finally, for donors, I guess the, the, the donors and funders, the key message there is uh, understanding that civil society tax advocacy is a long-term endeavor. It requires building different sets of capacities over time. It requires you know, being able at the right moment to spot political opportunities and go after them. This political opportunity might last, sort of, might happen sort of uh, above and beyond the usual you know, project period that, that funders tend to use. So, you know, having a long-term perspective and uh, providing flexible support so that this issue of learning and adaptation can be built into the ways in which uh, funding is provided to some of these organizations. That's pretty much covers in a, in a nutshell what the, what the book is about. Of course, there's a lot more detail in it. Uh, uh, thank you very much for, for having me. And if people are interested, it is open access, so you can download a free PDF from the Bloomsbury website. And we also do have discount flyers. I think a link will be provided afterwards. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Paolo. That's really interesting. And uh, there's a lot of things to unpack there. And I'd really love to hear uh, what, the, what the panel has to say about that from their own perspectives as well. So I will go straight to our, um, our experts. And I'll start with Sergio. Um, but just in, initially to get each of your reactions really to what Paolo's presented and um, uh, from your perspectives, from your experience of um, particularly Sergio, I'll start with you, um, from your experience of working in civil society, um, what were the examples that particularly resonated with your experience and um, uh, you know, how have you found working on tax campaigns in practice? Thank you, Hazel. Uh, well, let me start by, by saying that I feel grateful for this extremely helpful piece of wisdom that the book is for both tax justice activists and the scholars. Um, opportunities for more exchanges between like what the academic literature says and what practitioners do in this area are really important and scarce. And this, books, this book does exactly that. Uh, on the one hand, activists are busy people uh, and sometimes they are dealing with very urgent issues without time to reflect about how to be more effective. Um, and this book is written in a very accessible way and activists will have a chance to uh, dialogue here with what the academic literature says on the matter in a way that they will see themselves uh, into the picture in a reflective manner. Uh, on the other hand, scholars can sometimes uh, focus on problems that are not that close to the concerns of those on the action side. And this, book's, uh, this book gives them an opportunity to test their hypothesis uh, against research questions analyzed with a fine talent for interrogating the evidence that the book compiles and therefore is a great contribution that can help academics to make the research more relevant for action-oriented purposes. So to respond to your question, I work at two organizations that are best described as uh, think-do-tanks uh, because they combine research and advocacy activities. One focuses on global tax reforms, the Tax Justice Network, uh, and uh, one on national uh, and regional reforms, a South-based Colombian human rights organization called the Justicia. And each space has its own challenges. Um, when we talk about global tax reforms, mass mobilization uh, is a big challenge. 
And unlike what happens with the climate movement for the global tax justice movement, it has been hard to get mass movements interested on the matter or even get media attention. I don't think like you will disagree with me if I say that it's extremely difficult to make issues such as country by country reporting, unitary taxation with formulary apportionment or automatic exchange of information, all of these crazy acronyms, more sexy or compelling for a wider audience. Um, but that's why in the field of international taxation tactics, such as getting the right expertise or producing indexes that simplify and flip traditional narratives on corruption has, has become very important to influence or hold actors like the OECD accountable uh, for what they do. But then you must find ways to ensure that highly specialized decision-making spaces like the UN Tax Committee or the OECD are not immune to the more democratic accountability that comes with exposing the connection of these issues with broader topics such as human rights or the climate crisis. And that's the kind of a strategic challenge that an organization like Tax Justice Network is constantly dealing with. But when we focus on the national or local level, uh, which is the focus of the author's work, we face other challenges that the book captures very well. Uh, I think Colombia and the Justicia's uh, and partners work will be a perfect case study for the next book, Paolo. <laughs> uh, mm, because a failed tax reform was at the heart of the mass mobilizations in 2021 in Colombia that led to a national strike that shift the political landscape um, and eventually like open the door for the election of a progressive government, which in turn in turn approved a very progressive tax, re tax reform as its first political priority. Uh, CSOs in Colombia combined different tactics, as the book suggests, across this period. They created a national CSO fiscal platform where they combined reactive tactics such as debunking myths around the need for regressive tax measures uh, or with a more proactive stance on proposing an alternative uh, tax reform that was way more progressive. And the Justicia used strategic litigation to demand the entire tax code on the grounds that it was against the constitutional mandate of having a progressive tax system. The litigation was not successful, and I think that that speaks about how there are short-term like uh, failures or like or let's say, let's call them like temporal uh, um, defeats, <laughs> setbacks. Um, mm, but, the, but the litigation uh, helped to keep momentum um, in a wave of uh, public's concern on the role of taxes in exacerbating Colombian high levels of economic inequality during the political presidential campaign. And finally, once a progressive government was elected, some CSO members of the network became key government officials that pushed for a progressive tax reform that was approved, drawing on the proposals they drafted before as part of the civil society platform. Uh, the finding of the book that successful cases use multiple strategies at the right time resonated with me a lot, as well as the importance of assessing victories uh, in the long term. Because for civil society organizations, usually it's a marathon and not a sprint. I, I will leave it there for the first century. Sure, thank you so much. So I, I think uh, it would be really good now to go to Edward in Ghana um, to hear about the uh, perspective from someone working in government. Um, so I don't know if we can see Edward, if you want to unmute yourself. 
Um, and um, just the same sort of question to you, but from your perspective, working in a, a Ministry of Finance, how have you found uh, the policy-making process um, and, and any experience you've had with engaging with civil society? Well, thank you very much. And can you hear me clearly now? That's great, thanks. Yeah, go ahead. Wonderful. Um, so first of all, let me say thank you for the opportunity. And I also want to say the book is absolutely brilliant from the policy point of view. It gives us an insight to what the guys on the other side are doing and how they're, you know, sort of working from the other side to influence the policies that is being designed from the ministry and point of them stance. Um, it's also very interesting to kind of go through all the seven cases and see some of the successes and and then maybe the failures, as it were, in, in, within that context. But what I would probably want to do is, I'm sure um, people who have read the book would, would have probably had a, a better understanding of the things, but I want to sort of share briefly the Ghana side of, um, of things in terms of how does government sort of engage in policy formulation. Now, before I actually do that, I, I think it's also very instructive to step back and ask the question really, why is there poor um, engagement? Why is the level of engagement poor within the um, tax policy formulation space, especially in developing countries? And the answer is actually quite instructive because the first thing you have to remember is that most developing countries, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, you'd realize that within the overall fiscal framework discussions, tax policy was never really mainstream. So tax policy was usually considered as a residual to the fiscal policy formulation. So I dare say that in most developing countries, Ghana being an example, we never even had a tax policy unit until um, 2016 when we actually created a tax policy division. We probably had a tax policy, a group of people working on tax policy earlier. So what you, you the context here also is, matters because the context is that most countries actually never really had um, tax policy as part of its um, main core fiscal activity. It was really the case of, well, we design a budget, we look at the expenditure, and then you know we have a gap, a fiscal gap, and then we come up with tax policy measures to then fill that gap. So it's devoid of discussions around equity, progressivity, et cetera, and it's devoid of discussions around um, designing a, a very broad progressive tax system. So, so that's really the context. Now to the, the to case of um, how um, we've kind of engaged in Ghana. Um, broadly speaking, we, we, take, we tend to have three very distinct approaches to engaging CSOs in Ghana. One is that every time we actually go through the budget cycle, we do what we call the pre-budget engagement where we open up the budget system for discussions between the government and all key stakeholders, including CSOs. And we do this by going around the country to engage people and then soliciting feedback that then becomes part of the baseline input into the budget. We do same after the budget, which we call the post-budget engagement as well, where we go back and disseminate the tax policy measures. And then we sort of discuss the measures that we took on board whilst we're doing the pre-budget dissemination as well. And then the last, the second bit is what we call the tax dialogue, where the minister um, engages key stakeholders, including CSOs, big accounting firms, um, organized labor, business groups, and then outlines the proposed, some of the proposed um, tax measures. 
I have to say this this engagement is not always very consistent. It's not regular, and it's always on a kind of need to do basis, especially if a very controversial policy is being put across or is being planned. So, for instance, the Uganda example of the electronic transfer levy. We have something similar in Ghana, and it was implemented with a lot of angst, to say the least. And then the last one would be the case where we usually would put out in the newspapers to say, if anyone has any sort of suggestions or inputs to actually make into the budget, please feel free to actually do so. So these would be the kind of um, broad engagements that um, we, strategies that we use in Ghana. But I, I think the, the, the discussion is going to get very, very interesting as we go along. So my initial submissions would be to just set the context, i.e. to let people understand how tax policy has evolved, especially in most developing countries, and therefore the, the gap in terms of, or the poor engagement being as a function of also the fact that this is also a very new area in tax policy formulation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Edward. Yeah, that's um, also really good to hear your perspective um, from, from the government side and, and some of the way that um, the tax policy making process has evolved um, and, and opportunities or lack of sometimes to, to engage with that. Um, and now perhaps I could go to Mariam um, from uh, the perspective of um, uh, an organisation who's involved in um, funding civil society organisations, um, but also your general experience of, of working on civil society campaigns. Perhaps you could also give us some, some of your reactions as well. Absolutely. Um, thank you, first of all, for um, inviting me to um, be part of this panel and for the opportunity to just be aware of the book, uh, because in our efforts to stay abreast of developments in the field, we do see a lot of publications come out. We receive a lot of reports from our partners and grantees, but we don't always get the chance to um, engage deeply, and sometimes we just miss things, you know, so um, do appreciate the opportunity. Um, I second what was already uh, said by the other panelists, that it's a really brilliant book. Um, and many reasons for that, but I want to highlight three. Um, first of all, I think it's really important to document the work of social movements in general. There's a lot of work uh, to pursue social change that takes place that goes unnoticed and with it goes a lot of potential for movements uh, to learn from each other and from civil society actors within movements uh, in different countries in different regions um, to learn from each other so the book does that and purely for that reason it's already a, a really valuable uh, contribution and um, I agree that it does. Um, uh, fill a gap in the tax justice field in particular, um, which brings me to my second point. In this area of economic justice broadly, but tax justice more specifically, it's really important to have a publication like this. Why? And be keen, keen um, to hear your thoughts uh, on this. But my sense is that there's no other area where you have this deeply ingrained and pervasive idea that ordinary citizens and civil society actors should not be involved in the conversation. Uh, if you don't have the highest uh, qualifications in economics or you are a qualified tax expert 
or you don't have the stamp of approval from some kind of institution, then you shouldn't uh, uh, be talking about this issue or you can't possibly know what you're talking about. And this book does a great job in dispelling that myth. Um, and this idea is something, first of all, that I wholeheartedly disagree with. Um, but the publication does a great job to show that um, people care, people care deeply enough to even be mobilized into action. Um, and it also demonstrates the critical role that civil society organizations play in making what is a technical aspect uh, to many of these issues accessible. And um, it also shows their ability to, to poke holes in what I call kind of manufactured complexity and deliberate obscurity to really keep people out of the conversation. Um, so for that, also really great uh, uh, job done with the publication. And then thirdly, I really appreciate the diversity of the cases. I know you mentioned earlier that you just included all successful campaigns you could find, but it was, um, I mean, um, I, I really appreciated that there was a variety naturally in all these cases, right? You have organizations from different countries, different regions, working on different aspects of uh, uh, tax reform, um, some uh, involved in reactive campaigns, some more proactively, and also including different types of organizations, some deeply embedded in the tax justice movement, others more adjacent that suddenly get pulled into the conversation, uh, which is uh, which really enriches um, the learnings uh, for the organizations that are actually the object of the uh, of the study, first of all, but also other organizations and funders. Um, it's really useful for us to get a sense of what capacities different organizations have at their disposal, what they can draw on in different countries, what kind of strategies they use, how they engage in narrative change, what tactics, tools um, um, they are able to, to, um, to adopt in different contexts, because contexts do differ here, but also get a better sense of the different dimensions of the tax justice um, issues that they work on. So, when it comes to taxation, we tend to talk a lot about uh, the importance of um, financing and generating revenues. But what this um, document also shows is that for um, communities and organizations, it's also about fairness. It's about equity. It's about transparency and accountability. So it's not only about generating revenues. It's also about justice. And we need to um, and the conversation needs to be about that as well. Um, so I think it's going to be, uh, it is a very valuable um, tool uh, for funders um, that care about this work, and there's a number of us out there. Um, um, there's bilateral funders who work mostly with governments, focus more on the domestic uh, resource mobilization aspect and uh, um, strengthening tax administrations. There's also the uh, private funders where that tend to also look more um, to the tax justice um, um, angle of this work. OSF has been um, quite active in this field for a number of years, um, and uh, we work on both global tax governance reform, which I admit has taken a bit more of our attention uh, in the last year because of the uh, amazing developments um, 
on that area um, recently. Um, but we have been very deliberate, deliberate and intentional in also supporting civil society organizations that work on that domestic level because one needs the other. What's the point of working towards securing more taxing rights for global South countries and making sure that they have more sovereignty and autonomy in developing tax systems if you don't also support efforts to shape those tax systems in a way that is responsive to the needs of local populations, right? So we do both. And in fact, work of some of our grantees is described in the book, which is really great. But it's true that much more has been done than um, was described in the book. Um, you can call it failures or, or, or setbacks, uh, but I think um, they're important learnings. As I really appreciated that you made the explicit point in the book that even these successes were the result of capacity building and learning by doing from previous field runs. Um, so I think it's really important to also look at those examples. So I really appreciated the case you uh, shared earlier, uh, Sergio, because there's a lot to learn from those as well. So I second Sergio's point that I look forward to the next publication <laughs> <laughs> that will cover the entire uh, field. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Paolo, did you have any, do you want any, uh, come back on, yes, on any of those yeah, quickly? A couple of very quick points. Um, I mean, Sergio mentioned, you know, the story of what happened in Colombia. Unfortunately, that happened sort of after we had basically already written all of case studies. And I remember uh, the Jason Lakin, who was basically the guy co-coordinating the project with me. And, uh, you know, we basically wrote all of the, the, the main chapters together. You know, the two of us sort of discussing and saying, ah, you know, we should really, why did it happen now? It should have happened last year. Or, you know, can we write another chapter in, as, as we go along and maybe include it in the book, etc. So definitely what happened in Colombia a couple of years ago was super interesting. And, you know, if, if, if there will be another book, I'm sure this would be on, at the top of our list. Just as much as you know, it's, it's, it's always so much more difficult to sort of find find cases of failure. I mean, people who are familiar with them know them, but the ones that get documented and get the attention are the successes rather than the failures. So this this is, I mean, of course, a common, a common bias in a lot of academic research and a lot of other types of policy-related publications and so on. Everybody wants to focus on the success cases, on the good practices, on the best practices, etc. While, as you say, I think there's so much to be learned from uh, from failures and, and setbacks. What I, f I felt we were to some extent lucky to find is that even though at the beginning we wanted to sort of document successful cases, in the end, within the cases, there was so much that could be learned, as you said, from failed previous attempts or in, in each one of the chapters, the, the case study chapters, we actually asked authors to identify what I think we call something like a shadow case where you know something similar that either that same organization had worked on that didn't work or something similar in another country that again could be used as a bit of a an informal comparator to kind of add to the lessons that we could learn from from that specific campaign at that specific point so even i fully agree that there's a lot more that has happened and is continuing to happen in the world around around this issue and hopefully this will sort of you know this book can stimulate others to to uh take a closer look expand the number of cases etc 
And finally, on 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 Edward's points, I think those I, that that was really interesting to sort of hear, you know, how the government goes about thinking about what it means to sort of involve civil society groups in in a dialogue around policy priorities and the, you know, the honesty about saying, you know, often these things are done on a need to do basis. I think uh, I think you said so without necessarily that that full commitment to the process. That means that. Not only there's an ad in the newspaper that says, please send in your contributions if you're if you want to tell us what you would like the budget to look like or what tax policy reform you're interested in, but also that some someone at the receiving end that actually takes a close look at those things, evaluates them, assess them, uh, provides some feedback to those that sent in the proposals and so on. So um, on one hand, I think you know these mechanisms uh, uh, are encouraging and they should continue to happen and we should continue to improve on them. On the other hand, I think that we cannot deny the fact that debates, policy debates around public resources are likely to be conflictual. I mean, it's about power, it's about power struggles, it's about, you know, somebody's interests versus somebody else's interests. So trying to hide them in this, you know, fluffy idea of uh, citizen participation I don't think it is always going to work. And sometimes it will take some people hitting the streets, some demonstrations, some some clash, basically, that will generate the public debate, which then will hopefully bring to a, a, a bring the country to a better outcome that better reflects the interests of different groups and hopefully of the wider population rather than the you know normally catered for uh, vested interests. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I want to just do a very quick second round of our panelists just to um, delve a little bit deeper into some of the lessons and the practical implications from um, from the from Paolo's presentation and from the book. Um, and I wonder if I could um, go back to Sergio again um, uh, and maybe, well, I'll, I'll come to all of the panelists um, and if you could just sort of briefly say something about um, from your perspectives, um, whether you agree with the, the kind of key lessons that um, that came out um, for, for your sort of type of institution. So for Sergio, um, in terms of civil society organisations, there are a number of lessons there that came out around um, building up narratives, building coalitions, the kind of types of strategies um, that tend to be successful. Um, I mean, did you agree with those? And do you have any comments on that? Well, yeah, despite that the authors uh, clarify how strongly dependent on the context some of the findings are. Um, I I found strong evidence in the book to think on a couple of uh, lessons uh, based on uh, the recommendations at the end of the book that activists should consider regardless of the context, I think. Lesson one, be aware of your strategy and assess effectiveness of different channels or tactics before starting, no matter how busy you are. <laughs> and ideally conduct also an exposed evaluation to get the right lessons of, you know, these trial and error processes. Second, do not underestimate the role of narratives uh, and media. Uh, and it's very interesting how the book unpacks some of the challenges, you know, like uh, when, uh, for instance, you are working with different actors, including media, when you are crafting narratives and so on. Um, I mean, for instance, in the Uganda case, you know, Seatin experimented with uh, local radio stations because sometimes that's a way to reach 
an audience that you think that oh if you are use social media you are going to reach them and probably that's not the case it's a big risk nowadays uh, in the field i think um third lesson find allies within different sectors that allow you to challenge the views of other voices from the same sectors hmm? uh, including business and state actors that for instance are disseminating narratives that go against what you uh, are pointing out to change huh? uh, so i think it's it's very important to for, for civil society organizations not to ignore for instance the role of business in changing narratives uh, in the field of international taxation you know it's very important to have voices within the uh, domestic uh, um, business sector to say we want tax reforms at the international and national levels for making multinationals pay their fair share in a way that put them in the same like level uh, field than local business are. Um, fourth lesson, build collective counterpower and form coalitions that expand the mix of the capacities or skills you need to be successful. Uh, uh, fifth lesson, be prepared for not getting short-term victories, but invest on what is important for long-lasting change, including the capacities, the capacities to react to political opportunities that can pass very quickly. I, I've been in other processes connecting human rights with fiscal policy at a regional level in Latin America, for instance, with a coalition of organizations called the Initiative for Human Rights in, in Fiscal Policy. And I think this coalition is a good example of how when funders consider lessons um, uh, such as those in the book, uh, they can support collaborative initiatives with lasting impacts. Um, uh, this initiative of nine Latin American organizations, of which Fundar, the Mexican organization, organization analyzed in one of the chapters, is also a member, um, aims to shift the technocratic narrative around tax, debt, and budget policies in the region towards one center on socioeconomic justice and human rights. And this case study might also be analyzed in, in the next book, Paulo. Uh, but I think one can argue that such an initiative has played a crucial role for the recent creation of a platform uh, for regional cooperation, uh, which is helping to give Global South um, countries a more robust position um, anchored in human rights uh, narratives in the UN Tax Convention discussion, a process that is taking place right now at that is once in a century opportunity to reform the unjust international tax architecture. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and now I'll go back to Edward. Um, from the perspective of someone working in government, I think there were some lessons there about um, uh, how you engage with civil society in terms of maybe um, sometimes I can see that um, working in government, they might seem like a nuisance or a threat even, but perhaps um, there's a way to kind of use civil society organizations as, um, as, a, as a resource for supporting um, government policy, either in terms of providing some analysis if they have technical capacity or um, uh, in terms of helping to build public support. I just wondered if you had any comments on that. Right. Yes. Okay. So um, I, I think I've um, coming from the government point of view, I feel very much obliged to also share insights from the other side, if, if as it were, because I'm I'm reading the insights from the other side, and I think it's imperative that, that we do we do same. 
the first point I would say is that when it comes to the government side, there are two actors. Again, we have to be very careful. There are two actors here. There's the technocrats like myself, and then there are the politicians. The technocrats like myself would wholeheartedly welcome discussions with CSOs. I'm afraid I can't necessarily speak for politicians, but you know, short of cracking a bad joke, I would say that the politicians may slightly have a different view about CSOs to that of technocrats. But I, I think one of the things that I wanted to pick up um, from the theme from the book, which is on the capacity side, and, and here's what I think, um, if I should share some insights um, from, the, from the government side, from the technical side, it would be very useful. I'm not saying this as, as a cut across statement, but at least to the extent that the experience we have in Ghana is likely um, kind of marred by certain shortfalls. And I would be very specific, especially within the capacity angle, the need for analytical skills, especially when it comes to tax policy. So what you would see is that very often the CSOs in developing countries necessarily may not, and I'm saying this with a, a bit of a caution here, tax policy, and, and I, I know um, it was said earlier that tax policy sometimes is shrouded in a lot of um, secrecy, et cetera, but one cannot away, run away from the fact that tax policy in itself can be a very, very technical area. Um, it's not it's not by way of um, anyone's design. It's just the way that some of these things um, actually evolve over time. So, for instance, having some kind of understanding about, let's say, public economics does not necessarily make one a very good tax policy analyst. You you need to when you're doing tax policy analysis, you need to understand some of the key concepts such as incidence of the tax, the inherent tension between economic efficiency and equity the legal concerns of the tax policy itself, and the list goes on. So for me, one of the key things that I, I say I would want to kind of share with um, colleagues on the other side would be that there is there's this inherent risk, and we, we, need to, we need to be very careful. There's also this inherent risk posed by civil society organizations when it comes to how they actually approach certain tax policy. So some tax policy measures could be actually inherently progressive and overall benefit society. But of course, if you if you don't have certain technical skill sets, for instance, you would not be able to come to that realization. And I'll be very specific and give you a very clear example. In Ghana, there is an attempt to expand the VAT base to include energy consumption by households. Now, as a tax policy expert and as, a, as an economist, I can make the case and I think tons and tons of research have actually shown that for VAT, especially for VAT on household consumption, for instance, household energy consumption, for instance, narrow having a narrow base and actually exempting, in Ghana's case, exempting VAT household consumption, for instance, is not actually very progressive. And it's actually not in the overall welfare interest of the state. In, indeed, if we, we do that, the top decile income groups in Ghana actually benefit. But try introducing this policy, CSOs come in, and the debate gets a little bit muddy. So from where we sit, it would be very useful for us to also try and focus, especially as, um, as was presented, focus on the theme of capacity to ensure that 
the CSOs on the other side have built the capacity to hold not this, not just the, the policymakers, but the government overall to hold their hand to the fire, especially with robust technical analysis, which makes it very difficult for one to wriggle out and, and, and then focuses the discussion. If you listen to the discussion in Ghana, the debate is all very much about words, if, if I should put it that way. Yes, this is bad for the people. This is this, this is not good. This is, but no one is actually doing that detailed distribution analysis to show that indeed this is not this is not where we should be headed towards. No one is actually putting in place that kind of detailed technical analysis to counter maybe what the politics or the, the technocrats are actually putting across as well. So if there's one thing I would want to share in terms of how CSOs can help support tax reform in most developing countries. There is also the need to also focus on building very strong technical capacity, especially in tax policy analysis to kind of superimpose on the general strategies that we know CSOs are very good at. And I, for one, let, let me put it on record, I, for one, would always welcome CSO intervention in tax policy formulation, because I think that it would be very, very um, inappropriate for both technocrats and politicians to think that they have all the answers to the, the, the solutions because we all have our inherent biases, especially the politicians themselves. So I think that's, I, I would want to kind of pick specifically on the theme of capacity as was as was shared by the, um, the earlier, the, the first presenter to say that we need to also zoom in on that. And and I, and yes, programs like the tax theft program could potentially ex expand to include CSUs to actually help train them in, in that kind of um, space. Thank you very much. Thank you, Edward. That's a really important point. And I think um, it, it's also a bit of a challenge that you've put now to um, to the funders of civil society. So I just wondered if um, maybe, Mariam, you'd like to comment on that and um, um, maybe pick up on some of the um, uh, the, less, the broader lessons as well about um, how civil society organisations can actually get um, perhaps more flexible and longer term funding to support some of the, the work they're doing and, and the need to expand capacity in, in a range of areas uh, and be adaptive um, to, to different things that um, uh, opportunities that come up. Um, so first of all, I, I, I saw the, the um, lesson directed at funders in the, in the book. Oh, there's a need for flexible long-term investment in this field, uh, which is really important, but it's a recommendation that we hear all the time across all the issues that we work on. Um, um, but it's an important one, and yeah, I'd, I'd gladly uh, comment a little bit more about um, the lessons that I think we should draw as funders uh, from this publication and also just in general from conversations that I've had with grantees and partners and the contribution that was made um, just now. I think um, it is important to take into account um, the recommendation you made because there is um, a criticism that tends to be leveled at donors. I would say on the progressive side of things, uh, very, uh, um, I mean, regularly, and, th and that is that we don't act and think uh, and invest uh, long term. Um, I think there's an opportunity to be seized there, um, especially 
uh, with an increasing number of uh, donor collaboratives that are seeing uh, the light these days, I think there's an opportunity for funders there to really pool resources together and to use that as leverage to um, develop um, investment um, that is catered towards that structural infrastructure, networking support, that capacity building, coalition building that is needed and that needs and that requires a more long-term vision. These donor platforms, by their very nature, they, they tend to you know, encourage joint um, uh, analysis and learning and strategy uh, building that uh, um, um, supports uh, longer-term thinking. So I think there's something to be, um, to be exploited there. Um, um, so for donors to pull funds and to really think, to, to set aside amounts, uh, because it's important to, to, to continue making grants to important organizations in the field so that they can also do the work that, that needs to be done, but to dedicate an amount uh, where donors pool funding to really um, invest not only in organizations, but in ecosystems in a particular field uh, with a long-term vision of really uh, supporting that field and also maybe even dedicating a certain amount for organizations to seize unique opportunities I think is, is, is uh, something really important. Um, another request um, that is often made um, by um, our partners in the field is um, to use our convening power a bit more. Um, I think organizations really benefit a lot uh, from learning from each other. I think publications like this play an incredible role in encouraging that. Um, but there's something magical that happens when you simply bring people into the same room. Um, a lot of networking and, and, and joint strategizing and collaboration is happening, is taking place online these days. But there's something different about uh, meeting each other in person, especially also in terms, and this is something that I think maybe donors underestimate sometimes. Um, it's really important for that capacity building, for that joint uh, uh, learning and that mutual reinforcement and exchange, but it also really serves the purpose of uh, sustaining movements because movements are made up of people and people lose hope, lose inspiration, become tired and drained and, and want to give up and uh, um, social change takes time. I mean, to, to invest long term, we also need something to invest in. So making sure that we play a role in not only supporting those infrastructures, but also supporting movements to sustain themselves, I think is really important. And that convening role is really uh, uh, plays a critical role there. And then finally, I think it is absolutely true. We can uh, play an important role as funders in strengthening uh, capacities broadly, whether it's the capacities that you listed uh, uh, in the book, um, or uh, very specifically uh, the technical capacity of uh, um, whether it's uh, institutions or civil society organizations or, or tax administrations in, in countries. Um, there's a lot to be there with the, um, well, financial means of, of funders, but there's also something else um, that I know is the case for the organization that I work with, a little bit maybe also for others, but I'm not going to speak um, for others. We sit on a wealth of knowledge. 
the reports and the publications that were that that came out in the last years, the, the number of reports that we also uh, um, that uh, were produced that we commissioned from consultants to learn ourselves about uh, about certain topics. There's a wealth of information that we sit on, and that uh, uh, also in terms of uh, specific capacities, like we have an entire strategic litigation program that has produced guides and trainings and workshops that uh, civil society organizations can work uh, 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 can use. Um, there's a lot of work that's been done on narrative change, on mobilization, but also on the technical aspects of tax justice and other issues that are really important. So I think it would be um, um, useful for us to not only think about supporting capacity in terms of our grant making, which is critical and it needs to be there, but also to support that uh, with sharing the knowledge that uh, sits with us um, and make that available to uh, uh, civil society actors and our partners um, more proactively. And that is something that, yeah, we need to think through a little bit. <laughs> um, Brilliant, lots of excellent points there. And um, uh, I was going to come to you, Paolo, but I, I just wondered, I'm conscious of time, so I'm just wondering if there's any questions from the audience, and maybe we could take a couple of questions first, and then I'll come back to you, Paolo, and um, see if there's a, um, anything else you want to add. Um, so I'm just checking, uh, do we have any questions online? Um, if anyone has questions or comments, please post them in the chat. Um, and then we can raise them. Um, while we're waiting for that, um, is there anybody has questions here in the room? Um, okay, I'll start with Sam and then go to Frederic. Thanks very much, um, Sam, research here at ODI. Thanks very much, Paolo, for the book. I loved it and the discussion is very, very interesting as well. Um, what I particularly liked about the book, I think, and as many of the comments have shown, is how it highlighted the political nature of, of, of tax reform, right? And I think there's a risk a little bit in the donor community a couple of years ago, that's a, there was a realization, right, that a lot of attention has been put on domestic resource mobilization, but very little of that fund had gone to civil society. I think the stat was 3%, 2% of, of funding on DRM reached civil society. So then it's okay, well, we should fund civil society more. But that's a little bit challenging, right? Because we, you know, in our work, we spoke to a lot of civil society and they would say, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to work on tax, advocating for progressive tax reform, especially in contexts where trust in government is low is, is a difficult endeavor so so my question i wanted to push you a little bit more on, on what are the implications of that recognizing that tax reform is political for funders because most or at least many of the cases in your book right are are reactive cases opposing unfair taxes you know in in uganda in france and so on and of course there are many cases of of civic activism in opposition to taxes in the one direction you know in the wrong direction from a progressive point of view, business associations, civic actors opposing taxes that would be more progressive. So my question is, looking across your cases, do you have recommendations at a domestic level for, for what are the potential areas where it might be possible to galvanise progressive, proactive activism for tax reform, rather than just reacting to, to unfair taxes? What do you see as potential for funders supporting proactive, progressive tax reform? Because I think that's quite challenging. Should we take Frederick's question and then I'll come back to you? Thank you very much. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. I have to confess I haven't read the book, but I certainly will afterwards. And actually, I wanted to come back to um, 
some of a recommendation around the CSO and 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 the strategy and the narrative. All of that sounds very sensible, but I can't help myself thinking that certainly the yellow vest, which I know a little bit more because I'm French and I followed it, were was at least from for a long time one incredibly spontaneous right there was no narrative there was no strategy it just happened sui generis and and really maybe maybe i'm wrong but i also suspect that it built very much on a general dissatisfaction around the government full stop right and that that tax was a the the spark that generated the protest so is there uh, is are we not is how how really those recommendation recognize the fact that sometimes those movements are driven not by strategy but by spontaneous discontent I'll start from the second one. It's the easier one. <laughs> Sam's is much more difficult. Now, clearly, the yellow vests was kind of the outlier case in many ways. I mean, it's it, it was so different from all of the others that uh, we even had a little bit of trouble, kind of trying to draw lessons from it that could be of interest, uh, you know, within this broader scheme of the five emerging themes that we identified and so on. Mostly because it was such a such a loose, spontaneous. Uh, movement that wasn't even a movement, it sort of created itself through social media and through media attention. Mm. Uh, and then there were various attempts to kind of, on one hand, co-opt it. So trade unions tried to step in, political parties tried to step in, and the, the, you know, the Yellow Vest just basically said, we're not interested, we don't want to talk to anybody, we just want to say our thing and demonstrate and sort of manifest our discontent. Uh, which then made it very difficult for them to even articulate uh, like a, a policy proposal as such. So they, they were very much against a bunch of things, but they were not necessarily for many others. So eventually, you know, the, the wealth taxation and citizen participation became a couple of, of the things that seemed where there seemed to be enough consensus, but it was very difficult for them to articulate, to have a common voice. It was, a, it was this sort of social media fed uh, uh, creature that is clearly very different from all of the other cases that, that we look at. Uh, so we, in many ways in the book, we treat it as a, a bit of a special case, partly about things that you can learn in terms of how not to do things in many ways, because they didn't try to create coalitions, they didn't have a clear strategy, they, you know, they certainly were effective at messaging, but partly because they started, you know, putting a lot of things on fire, basically. And so the media started paying attention to them. So violence was a big, uh, a big fuel in terms of the attention that they got and, and the legitimacy that they got uh, through that. So basically, yeah, that that's kind of the the, the 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 summary of it. So I think there are some lessons to be learned mm -hmm. for others, but mostly in the sense of uh, do things differently from what they did, and you're likely to basically be more more successful. I guess, yeah. I would quickly add to that also the, the the mobilizing power. I mean, like, okay, none of the other the technical capacity, the mm -hmm. narrative change efforts, even or the, the the intentional strategizing wasn't there. Even when you have none of that, 
being able to mobilize discontent is really powerful because in the end it was yeah. a successful campaign whether or not they intended <laughs> like strategically or anything they succeeded and i think that was also just an important lesson when yeah. all else fails when you can do that when you can mobilize make a difference and yeah i mean i i fully agree and uh i mean as something you said before about the fact that uh sometimes it, it takes a spark basically mm -hmm. for people to realize mm -hmm. that they do have the collective power to mm -hmm. change things mm -hmm. even though you know most of the people that started going to the roundabouts with a yellow vest most of them had never engaged in any kind of activism mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. so it's an interesting case of what are some of these specific and special circumstances under which collective power can come to be and mobilization can come to be but you know i do think it's a very idiosyncratic example so at least in, in our reflection there were only a very few things that you could learn from it that were probably more broadly applicable moving to sam's question which i think is both very important and very difficult uh the easy answer is that it's not easy to basically find whatever some areas where uh that are valid across countries where there's likely to be enough energy to basically uh, create political momentum around some kind of, of tax equity proposal. Uh, so it's very much context specific. We see it in, in our case studies, you know, in each country, whether it was reactive or proactive, it was, you know, something that one organization identified as something important, which then sort of became more important as they went along because they built other things onto it uh, or it was a reactive thing where they were just sort of trying to get people to get organized to uh, get the government to not do what it said it would it wanted to do. I wouldn't say that most of the cases we cover are reactive. I mean, if you think about the most successful ones, I would consider to be Mexico, the Philippines and Guatemala. Actually, all of them are, are proactive. It's true, there were political opportunities that opened up. But so they reacted to a corruption scandal, that's fine, but it's not like they, so they actually put a proposal on the table. Fundar went after the government to get more transparency. Uh, Action for Economic Reforms basically said, you know, here's an opportunity for us to increase, you know, argue for the increase in sin taxes so that universal health insurance can, can be expanded, etc. So that was that was the easy answer the the more difficult answer in in my view is comes from the fact that the the terms of the debates are shifting globally and this is true basically across all countries so it opens up opportunities in terms of recognizing and all you know thanks to the work of the uh, tax justice network thanks to the, all of the different organizations that are mobilized, thanks to the funder support that are basically supporting uh, this, this idea, thanks to the work of academics like you know, Piketty and all of them who are kind of have put inequality, have put fiscal justice on the agenda. Uh, so one part of it on the international side has gained a lot of momentum and is already sort of having its own momentum. But on the domestic side of things, it's the terms of the debate are shifting and that opens up political opportunities which were not available, I think, five or 10 years uh, ago. So whether, you know, there is enough political space for, you know, organizations that are capable enough to really sort of ride this wave and 
uh, and start, you know, putting together proposals and creating coalitions, etc. That again will depend a lot on on a, on the specific context in a specific country, etc. Uh, on the political opportunities that exist or that might open up. But I do think that there's a, let's say, a contextual shift, which is going to, is which I hope is going to make this work more relevant, more more impactful, uh, more doable in a, in a larger number of countries than was the case a few years ago. Yeah, that's question. Yeah. yeah, I think that, well, one of the methodological virtues of the book is that for the case study, it used a counterfactual hmm, to ask like those that wrote the cases, okay, what would have happened if you wouldn't have been there, you know, like, um, because I think that, that that's a very positive exercise to understand what real the the, the causal mechanism, hmm? the causal me the causal mechanism to understand the the, the story. Sorry, um, and I think that, for instance, funders and our own organizations like need to start asking questions like this to understand how the ecosystem of actors work and who is it, why civil society is important to make the most of political opportunities, including, for instance, when there is discontent, general discontent against a government, how that can translate into uh, reforms, actual reforms on, of, uh, uh, on the tax field. Because sometimes there is a risk that, for instance, journalists put the issue on the table, like with scandals, Panama Papers, and so on, but then translating that into tax reforms is a huge challenge. And then there is a sequence that needs to happen where other actors come into the field to say, okay, you know, in order to fix this problem, we need to come up with proposals. And sometimes that's not done by uh, technical experts uh, in the government or by like any other actors. And that's when civil society is really important, you know. Briefly, just one point on, on, okay, on the question. Quickly, uh um, question online, so I'd like to come to that. I think if you want to encourage um, progressive tax reforms um, campaigns more pro um, more proactively, it's useful sometimes to not lead with tax, to talk about climate change, to talk about inequality, to talk about gender wage gaps, gender justice, to talk about all of these issues that people care about deeply, even when they might think tax is a little bit boring or a little bit too complex. When you engage with them on these issues and then start to talk about all the tools you have at your disposal to actually address them, tax being an important one of them, people become interested and want to talk about uh, uh, tax reform proactively. And what you see these days when you look at um, campaigns in these fields, there's a lot of talk about tax. There's increasingly more talk about tax and very proactively so. Um, so I just want to put that out there. who's um, online and he's working in um, for our tax dev program in Rwanda with the tax policy department there in the Ministry of Finance um, and he was asking about um, the role of political actors um, because uh, assuming that um, tax campaigns are, are kind of um, uh, standard fare for them in terms of you know they're likely to have more capacity in terms of the kind of um, areas that you mentioned around communication, media coverage, 
um, knowledge of the tax system and so on. So um, he was wondering if you could elaborate a bit on um, the role of political actors and uh, what lessons there are for um, civil society organisations to to use or to work with political actors to achieve um, tax policy goals. I mean, we see in the case studies uh, many attempts, some of them more successful than others, uh, of civil society actors trying to approach. I'm assuming that when they say political actors, he means politicians, politicians yeah. members of parliament, ministers, you know, within and outside, sort of within the executive, within the legislature. And clearly, I mean, those, you know, they, in the end, they're the real decision makers. So they're basically your main target audience, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Trouble is that often, you know, they're either they have different ideas, they have different priorities, they, they need, they, they have to listen to lots of different people. So it's, again, it's, it's really about the strategies that you put in place to convince them about the fact that what you're proposing makes, uh, makes sense. Where, uh, you know, it's, and it's also, you know, how, to, how do you play the political game in a way that makes your reform, the reform that you're proposing more or less uh, possible or feasible? I mean, in the case of Uganda, you know, basically Satini in, in many ways made the mistake of approaching political actors that were part of the opposition. So the government immediately was against anything that they said, and they, they sort of regretted it afterwards. Uh, in, in, in the US, you know, in one of the cases in the US, uh, the activists and the coalition had to wait until a change of government before they were able, so they had worked with the head of the opposition, he then became governor and he, one of his first proposals was to do exactly what the coalition had proposed. So it's, 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 it's the most important, but at the same time, the most difficult relationship, both to build and to use for the ends of the reform, I would say. Yeah, thank you. So um, I think we're actually running out of time, or we actually are out of time. Um, I just wondered whether maybe you could um, in, indulge me in just a very, very quick round just for everybody to conclude with in a few words what your main takeaway is from this. And, and maybe if you want to reflect on um, how civil society, government and um, funders can actually work better together to achieve the aims. So very, very quick, just a few words. I'll do a quick, just quick round to conclude. So Sergio, any thoughts from you? Well, I will say that in one sentence, civil society activism matters for making change happen. And the way we can work together uh, is to make sure that uh, we learn the lessons that different actors can bring into the table with the spaces for instance, for more exchanges, more strategic exchanges, and also opening times for reflect more about this that activists sometimes do not have. Uh, and I think that the role of funders uh, for that is very important, but also civil society organizations need to uh, be aware of the importance of uh, assessing their strategies, evaluating their strategies and holding themselves accountable for what they are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and Edward, are you still there online? Yes, I am. Eat yourself. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Yeah, so quickly, I, I, I wanted to just um, make a quick statement on the political engagement. And I think that one of the things that civil society um, actors can also do is to ensure that they can strategically identify and also capture 
what I call the Overton window for influence and tax policy, because tax policy being a nature of um, government policy or political policy emanates from somewhere, the source. So for instance, most political parties would have a manifesto in which they would have um, tax policies embedded in it. Maybe one of the one of the kind of strategic positioning that um, civil society groups can do is to actually look at these kind of very rare but very opportunistic Overton windows that tend to open within the political cycle to actually slot themselves in there and actually influence policy from that angle. But, but from the point of view of government, I think that it goes without saying that we need to be, um, the government point of view has to be one where we honestly engage, we are transparent and we are structured in continuously engaging CSOs to actually influence and take on board some of these very useful insights that we often tend to overlook when we are formulating tax policy. Um, I mean, this also helps to create the this, this sense of an atmosphere of trust. And it's also kind of, um, it creates this sense of um, working together to build what I call a very, very comprehensive tax system that is progressive and efficient. Now, what, what tends to happen is that people always tend to forget that a policy can come on, on stream and it is jumped on as the policy and everyone is focused on that without actually looking at the context of the policy within the broader tax system as well. So that's um, one of the things that I think that governments also need to look at. Um, and then also lastly, um, government needs to provide feedback to CSOs when we engage so that they actually know why certain policies are being undertaken and why certain policies are not being undertaken. So I'll leave it here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Edward. And uh, quickly go to Mariam. I know you need to leave, so <laughs> if you need to run away, quickly. go. I think it's really important to provide that uh, flexible, strategic, uh, long-term funding to support uh, civil, the great civil society organizations that are doing this amazing work and leading movements uh, um, towards really uh, important change, um, but also to support that uh, um, what is it, financial <laughs> uh, grant making with non-financial support where we um, enable um, different organizations across regions, across countries to meet each other, to exchange, to learn from each other, but also facilitates uh, engagements between uh, state institutions, governments, civil society actors, or different stakeholders within a field to really uh, advance change. I think um, all of this requires uh, um, creativity and out-of-the-box thinking from uh, uh, from funders, but also a little bit of courage to, to kind of go against the grain these days of uh, pursuing uh, quick wins and uh, immediate impact. Um, so yeah, lesson learned. Good, Thanks. Good to hear that from a, from a donor. <laughs> from me personally. Any final thoughts, Paolo, very quickly? No, just, just very grateful. I thought this was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, uh, get the book, read the book, spread the word. <laughs> Till the next one. Yeah, and I think my, my key takeaway is that we probably all could do more um, in terms of engaging with uh, tax policy issues, whether that's educating ourselves a bit more on, um, on what that means or whether you want to kind of participate a bit more actively in these kind of campaigns. Um, and um, so you should all go and read the book and learn how you can do that and get involved. So <laughs> I'll leave it there. And um, I just want to thank, um, thank Paolo and the authors for this excellent book and uh, thank our um, excellent 
panelists as well and um, all of you for participating both here and online um, and for your uh, uh, for your attention and patience we've run a little bit over um, so uh, yeah I'll leave it there also to thank our, um, our uh, support from the um, Gates Foundation and UK Aid um, and we'll be continuing this uh, program of work on fiscal equity and civil society engagement so we hope that you will um, join us in future events and I'll, I'll close it there um, so for, for those of you that are in the room, we now have uh, a small drinks reception just next door if you'd like to stay around. And um, for those online, we'll be sharing some links for uh, relevant materials um, that we've mentioned in the discussion, including a link to where you can find the book. Um, it's available for free to download from Bloomsbury Collections, as Paolo mentioned. And there is also um, the opportunity to get a uh, discount um, for physical copies, which I think is being posted in the chat. Um, and you can pick up one on your, on your way out here as well. So with that, I will end the session. And um, good evening, everyone, or good afternoon. And um, thank you very much.